So the topic for today is actually generosity. (laughs) So I was kind of hoping Andrea would go on longer in this vein. Uh, (laughs) But I'll fill in some of the blanks uh, around this. Um, so this is a word that you might have seen in some meditation centers called dana, D-A-N-A, dana, the Pali word, uh, for generous giving. It's actually one of the first teachings that the Buddha often gave to lay people was about generosity and generous giving. It wasn't actually meditation. It was actually first about generosity and also actually about uh, integrity, about ethical conduct. So that's, those are the main things that he would first talk to um, people about, and then he would talk about uh, meditation. In fact, even for the monastics, actually, he would talk to them about uh, how to uh, be a good monk or nun, how to, to behave, and they would learn the rules, and they would learn how to interact with lay people. And then they would also learn the meditation. Right? So this, this is not like the uh, baby teaching. This is important teaching. In fact, I remember um, one of my teachers telling me, you know, if you ignore things like uh, these teachings about generosity, the teachings about ethical conduct, and you want to progress in your meditation practice, uh, it will be very difficult. So this is like if someone wants to row a boat, but keeps it tied to the dock. Uh, so, uh, you know, you might get somewhere, depending on how much rope you have, but eventually you're going to run out of rope. Right? <laughs> so uh, this is, uh, affects the mind, the heart, uh, in very profound ways. So uh, when I was first asked to start um, teaching, um, I was actually uh, in the middle of um, business school. I was getting my MBA. And uh, so I'd come back from that period of just being a Dharma practitioner full-time, and then was kind of doing some approximation of being a normal person, um, except for disappearing for month-long retreats um, every year. And then this tradition, your teacher tells you to teach. Like, you don't just go hang out your shingle, but someone will tell you to teach or invite you to teach. And, you know, it really is very counter to the uh, things I was learning in business school uh, about how <laughs> the world works, right? Uh, about how business works, about how organizations work, about how money works, you know, in American society and capitalist society. So, uh, you know, she's inviting me to join this profession in which um, the starting salary is nothing, you know. (laughs) And uh, you go and give of your time and life, and then you put out a bowl at the end. And then you trust that uh, your life will be sustained. Uh, This was not what was being taught at business school. (laughs) And I actually... uh, hesitated about being a teacher for many years, um, for this and for other reasons also. Um, So uh, it took me about eight years to actually start um, teaching. Um, And this was part of the, uh, part of the reason was that I didn't understand how this was going to really work. And I think eventually then um, it just became clear to me that um, I was already just a lifer in the Dharma, that was not the question, but whether or not my role was to teach or not was a question for me. Uh, and I had regular jobs in which, you know, like many of you, then you get limited amounts of like vacation time, right, free time. So then I still felt like I needed to progress in my own practice, and I thought, oh, the best thing for me to do is to continue my own practice, not spend time trying to teach other people things. Um, and then at a certain point, as I was starting to teach, it became clear this is also part of my practice. And then at a certain point, it became clear that uh, 
it just didn't feel right to have to say no to teaching uh, that I was asked to do um, because I didn't have enough vacation time. You know, it just seemed like a mundane reason to not be doing what I felt like was a very critical human activity. And in terms of you know what I feel like I have to offer in the world, um, this is really uh, the best of what I have. You know, the, uh, the Dharma I, I think is the most profound uh, and amazing. You know, the, the teachings of liberation, um, some of which are very simple and very you know basic and down to earth, and some of which are very subtle uh, and rare to hear. But I sort of decided, you know, when I'm 65 years old, I could be like, oh, look, I paid off my mortgage and I had a job, but what if I did that thing that I really loved? What if I did that thing I was called to do? So I decided to take the leap, and I left my regular job maybe three or four years ago, and since then have been uh, increasingly spending my life in uh, teaching Dharma. And it's a practice for me. You know, I'll admit, it's definitely a practice for me in... uh, uh, just as it is a practice for you in this um, format. And I think it's also part of the movement of the Dharma as it's entering um, Western society. Yeah. So in, this is based on uh, the forms in Asian society of monasticism, right? in which actually uh, the monks and nuns uh, renounce everything. Right? So they renounce all money, they renounce their names, they renounce their hair, they renounce their clothes, they renounce eating afternoon, uh, they renounce all entertainment, they renounce uh, sexual activity, uh, you know, extreme renunciation, right? Uh, And then they basically live on the generosity of people to feed them. Uh, They keep their needs simple, so they have, you know, get a robe maybe every year or something, Um, get medicines offered when they need it. and then the culture has developed such that um, monasteries also are places where people can go and practice and be supported. So the time that I spent in Sri Lanka practicing uh, was uh, in monasteries, a lot of it, and people would come and give us food, you know, like different, um, different people every day, like different villages would come sort of together and do that. It was kind of like a field trip for the town to come and feed us. And, it was actually very motivating and moving to see people doing this. You know, it was very clear that uh, the reason I was alive that day was because those people came and gave me food to eat. Right? So it was also very motivating, like, oh, I better practice well, because you know, these people worked hard, and <laughs> they're oftentimes giving like, the best that they had. You know, sometimes very poor people would come and give uh, like, clearly like, the best that they had. Uh, and sometimes, sort of on top of that, they would give something else, like a bar of soap or like a small towel or, you know, something to the people practicing. And it was very moving, you know, like their faith in the practice, their reverence for the form and for, um, for the Dharma, you know. So you could say, yeah, some of it was sort of cultural and taught and, you know, things like that. But a lot of it felt also very sincere. And um, in that monastery, we were all practicing like uh, pretty hard line, you know, like we were working hard. So it felt like, oh, it's part of this interconnection you know, community interconnection with uh, the teachings and practitioners and just like Josephine Dumanek says, in fact, (laughs) it helped us to become aware of the relationship of all living things to other living things, which is the key to knowing ourselves, the basis for understanding the intricate web of life. So it was part of that, you know, it actually was part of feeling the interconnection, which is an important aspect of uh, generosity. 
So there's a lot of stories about um, generosity in the Jataka stories, these different animal stories of the Buddha's past births. And in them often there's kind of some extreme version of, um, of real uh, extreme generosity where animals sacrifice their life so another can live or uh, an elephant will give up his tusks uh, so that uh, someone can sell them and survive or a rabbit who will like throw himself into a fire so that someone will have food to eat or you know things like that. Uh, but I thought I, w- I would share a story with you of a modern bodhisattva uh, just because it's maybe more relatable than rabbits throwing themselves into fire and so on, right? <laughs> so this is from, uh, this is a story that was on NPR actually um, about uh, a man in New York City who uh, he lived in Brooklyn and every night he would take the same train home and he would actually get off a stop early from his, uh, one bef- stop before his house um, because he liked to go to this diner there, the six train, if any of you are from New York. So this guy is a 31-year-old social worker. His name is Julio Diaz, and he'd stop in the Bronx one stop early. Um, but then one night he got off the six train, it was kind of an empty platform, and this uh, young uh, man came up to him, a teenager, uh, with a knife, and he demanded his money. So Diaz actually took his wallet and he gave it to him, and then the uh, Teenager began to walk away, and then Diaz did a surprising thing. He said, hey, wait a minute, uh, you forgot something. If you're going to be robbing people all night, maybe you want my jacket. It's cold tonight. So this guy, was, you know, the teenager was kind of flummoxed by this and uh, said, like, why are you doing this? And, uh, but you could you know, see there's some shift already in their relationship. And uh, Diaz says, well, you know, if you're willing to risk your freedom for a few dollars, then you must really need the money. I mean, all I was going to do is just go and get um, some dinner here, and if you want to join me, you're more than welcome to. So also, not expected, right? Offering of generosity. So apparently the teenager decides to go with him to dinner, uh, and uh, they go to this diner, and they sit in a booth, and then um, all the people who uh, Julio sees every day come and say hello to him, like the waiter and the owner of the restaurant and the dishwasher and the teenager is surprised by this too and he says do you own this place like you seem to know everyone here right? and Julia says no I just eat here a lot and the teenager says but you seem to be nice to everyone even the dishwasher and the guy who takes the, you know, the glasses and he says well haven't you been taught you should be nice to everybody and the teenager says yeah but I didn't think people actually did that you know yeah. uh, so then apparently Diaz asked him what he actually wants out of life, and he did, couldn't really answer. He just had kind of a sad face. Um, so they ate their dinner, and then uh, at the end, uh, Diaz said, you know, I would love to treat you for dinner, but actually you have my wallet. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but, so you're going to have to pay for it unless you give it back. So the guy actually gave him back his wallet, so then uh, Diaz paid for the dinner, and then he gave the kid $20. And he said, he, you know, for whatever you need. And then he uh, said, I have one more thing I want to ask you for uh, in return, which is, can I have your knife? And the kid actually gave him his knife. So, uh, you know, surprising story of, of how someone can react, right? Extreme generosity in this case. So uh, when someone mugs you, what do you do? Right? So he actually, in this case, was able to somehow relate in a radically different way, right? And in that radically different way, he was actually able to totally transform the relationship. 
And this is, this is an actual story, and you know, things like this happen all the time. So the, the incredible power of generosity. You know, the Buddha taught, and, uh, and this is in a sign in our kitchen, in fact, that uh, um, Nancy has there, which is that if, if you understood what I did about the power of generosity, you wouldn't let even one meal go by without sharing with someone else. Right? Very powerful force. Right? And there are actually these many different um, stories in the, uh, the Jataka stories also about various people who had some... Uh, some kind of prosperity in their life, and then you know the question was like, well, why were they so prosperous? And then they would go back in some past life, they were very poor, but then they offered uh, their one meal to some uh, traveling uh, like mendicants or monks or something, right? They gave the small amount that they had, and from that generosity came these like great results. So the Buddha taught that there are many different uh, benefits of generosity. The first benefit is, of course, in transforming your own heart. Right? It's a radical transformation of the heart. Like when you actually do something in the act of giving, you know, uh, you're actually making that shift of commitment from you know, the grasping, greedy mind right, to the open-handed, generous mind. Like even if, if you do that now, like put out your hand like with grab, you know, like do like grab, right? Versus like you know, offer. Like, you can feel that in your body, right? Like, it affects your body, and the body affects the mind in some way. Uh, also, on uh, other positive results are that people will uh, like you, usually. Right? <laughs> but they actually talked about practical things like this, right? Like, you're actually uh, uh, dear and charming to others, and people will admire you. You'll have a good reputation. Also, interestingly, he said, you know, you can approach people confidently. If you're a generous person, you won't uh, feel so worried. You'll feel much more confident, actually. And it's both an expression of confidence to be generous, because uh, generosity comes from resting in a sense of abundance. Like resting in a sense of, like, there is enough, there will be enough, I will be okay. We will be okay. As opposed to a sense of, like, I need more, here's me. You know, it's, it's it's a world that's out to get me. So it's both an expression of coming from, and also the act of generosity itself grounds you in that perspective of abundance. Uh, Which is the radical thing that's actually demanded of us in this tradition as uh, Dharma teachers, as Andrew was saying, is to like rest in that abundance. And also for those who are cooks, who came all the way from Oregon to cook from the forest. Like a radical act to, to do that. So there's many different levels of giving that you can uh, give also. So one level is sort of giving stuff that you don't really want, right? Um, so that's good. It's better than grasping everything, right? <laughs> it's better than hoarding everything. Uh, you give away like the leftovers and things you don't want, right? Now I should say, with the cultivation of generosity, even when you do something like that, um, it's actually good to do that intentionally in some way, right? So even like after you eat, when you're putting your food in the compost, is actually a moment when you can actually cultivate the wish of generosity, even for like the animals that might eat that, or the insects that might feed on that, or uh, you know the plants that might grow. Like just actually having a positive intention of generosity in the action that you do. Right? Uh, otherwise, you might also have a different level of generosity that's like a 
you might give something, but with an idea that maybe sometime I'll get something in return, right? So it's not the leftover stuff, but it's like, I'll give to you, but probably you'll buy my next meal next time, right? Like, I'll buy you a meal, but you'll buy me next time, or uh, I'll give this to you, but it's part of this relationship in which you'll do something for me, right? So that also is uh, a good thing to do, but it's not the uh, highest generosity. So the highest generosity is actually being able to give really with this open-handedness, you know, just knowing that generosity itself uh, is a beautiful and wholesome thing. Giving the best that we have, right? Like giving the best that we have. And this includes giving the best that we have, not just of objects, but of our attention, right? So you could, you could notice, like, who do I really pay attention to? You know, who do I give the best of my attention to? Is it the people who seem, like, important or rich or, you know, something like that? Uh, like, will I pay attention to a little kid who talks to me or to a beggar on the street? Will I give them attention even as I say, I can't offer you money or I can't offer you money? Is it like someone who I think is um, not so smart? Will I give them attention or do I dismiss them, right? Like, what's the way in which we deal with that? You could share even uh, greeting or smile. So these things don't cost things, but just a a level of friendliness with people. You could share your time. You could share information. So many different ways in which we can actually practice um, generosity, uh, regardless of what your level of uh, actual wealth is. Now, regarding this, uh, you know, the level of, of wealth and so on, um, that was actually another thing that came to, to mind for me when I was reflecting about, you know, becoming a Dharma teacher and, and so on. It's like, well, who actually seems to be happier who I know? You know, there's actually people who are very wealthy, right, who are, uh, have made a lot of money, have made a lot of success and things like that. Uh, and then, you know, through my, my spiritual uh, journeys, I had also met a lot of renunciates. And interestingly, they were among the happiest people I knew. <laughs> you know, these uh, people who seemed to have absolutely nothing. Right? So that was telling to me. Uh, it's not actually about you know how much wealth that you amass or possessions that you amass, right? And that's not to uh, also you know idealize poverty or something, right? Like it's good to have enough too, and it's possible to have a lot of wealth and also to be happy and also to be a virtuous person. So it's not about like, oh, it's bad to be rich and it's good to be poor, right? But clearly, like, being wealthy does not guarantee happiness. So you can see this even uh, in society, even if you don't know the rich people personally, right, from um, uh, looking at the newspaper or magazines, right? So um, I remember where I used to work, we used to get um, in our break room this magazine called Us Weekly, so it's kind of a pop magazine of like movie stars and uh, celebrities, basically, right? And what they're up to and so on. And um, I would jokingly call it like Dukkha Weekly. Because you know? <laughs> uh, so Dukkha is like this unsatisfactory, you know, suffering, basically, you know, because you get it. And it's like, here are these people who are um, very good looking, um, famous, and very rich. So from that, it seems like, you know, they got everything going for them. And... Um, it's basically about a lot of different calamities, like their relationships breaking up and their addictions and, you know, like all kinds of drama going on. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's just so clear, like if you pay attention, like that is not necessarily the recipe for happiness, right? <laughs> I mean, you could be rich and good looking and famous and also be happy, but clearly it's not just that, right? 
It's not just that that's going to guarantee it. So here's a, a, a study, actually, also, for those who like scientific studies. That was done, that was in Science Magazine. And it says, um, uh, this, this article says, money can buy happiness when you spend it on others. <laughs> That's the conclusion of a study appearing in this issue of Science Magazine. It found that spending on other people brings people greater satisfaction than buying things for themselves. What's more, most people seemed unaware of this hidden key to happiness. <laughs> so then, of course, because it's a scientific study, they have a fancy name for it. So they call it pro-social spending. Uh, so uh, they looked at this in, in three different ways. So first they noticed that you know, hikes in income could boost happiness. But it actually, um, research shows that as average income rises within a society, people's levels of happiness remain relatively static. And this is kind of true. Like it seems like in different countries, it's not always the wealthiest countries that are where people seem to be the happiest, right? Uh, so they they asked uh, a representative of they had 632 Americans to rate their happiness and then report their income and then also report how much they spent on different items, including gifts to others and donations to charity. And they found that those who had more of this pro-social spending, basically who gave more money away, uh, were happier. Then they asked people to, they did another study where they asked employees to rate their happiness before and after receiving um, profit sharing. So these people were in companies where they got some like bonus based on the profit of the company. And uh, they noticed that those who gave away more of their bonus, also uh, in terms of donation or gifts, uh, also reported being happier. And this didn't matter how little or how large the bonus was. And then finally, they did a, a study in which they gave uh, participants some money in an envelope. So they gave them $5 uh, or $20. And they asked us, them to spend it that day itself. And they assigned some people to spend it uh, on whatever they themselves wanted to, a personal item. Uh, and then they assigned some people to give it as a gift to someone, right? and some people to like donate it. And those who gave the money to someone else also reported much more happiness post-windfall than those who were looking out for themselves. So even something as small as five dollars uh, may be enough to repeat to reap a happiness dividend. They said. Uh, so this is the the clinical psychiatrist involved in this was uh, sort of analyzing reaching reaching out and doing things for other people allows you to create a kind of community. And I think this is part of this mechanism of generosity. You know, it does help us to feel this kind of connection. Like it's, it's actually an act of reaching out and being connected to others. Part of my observation of people who um, have a lot of wealth is that sometimes that actually can insulate someone from others because you actually can buy a lot of stuff that otherwise um, you have to ask people for help for. You know, you can, uh, instead of having to ask people to help you move, you can like pay people to do that. Or instead of having to, uh, you know, ask people to, uh, help you take care of something like you can pay people to do that. And it's easier to sort of insulate yourself from community if you have such resources. You don't have to now, but it seems to be a possibility. So it also begs the question then of like, well, where, who is the giver and who is the receiver, right, in these, uh, in these interactions of generosity? So who is the server and who is the receiver? So someone told me about a friend of theirs who was very sick and um, 
uh, was in a lot of pain, was actually kind of near the end of their life. Um, and they were actually physicians, so they were uh, giving themselves pain medicine. And they said, you know, sometimes it's so, it's so difficult that I feel like um, I just want to end it, like I should just take a bigger dose and, and end my life. But then I think like, oh, you know, I should make that call to so-and-so. Like, uh, they were worried about their business and I have some ideas for them. Or then I think like, oh, my, um, my niece was having a problem with her boyfriend and I should really talk to her about that. You know? And so then they, they wanted to live on because they remembered these different connections they had to others and basically a different thing they could do to help. And then they said, you know, that even the days then after this happened for a while when they couldn't remember something immediately, they thought, well, something might come up, so I better live, you know. <laughs> so it's like this act of generosity, this thought like, oh, I could be generous, like I might be able to be of service to someone, you know, actually gives meaning to our lives uh, in ways that it helps us to realize this interconnection. So generosity was first on this list of the paramis, even though we're talking about it last. Uh, and uh, it's the beginning of the list, but also it's kind of the, the conclusion, the, the, the uh, end of the path in some ways too. Because, you know, when Buddha talked about, well, what is suffering and what is the source of suffering? Um, you know, the source of suffering was actually this activity of the mind moving, right? The mind moving and craving and then clinging, right, towards an object. So we talked about this with renunciation. And generosity is actually uh, sort of the answer to that. It's like, oh, instead of doing that, do this, right? It's, it's like a, the answer to uh, the illusion of self-centeredness that that moment uh, of desire creates. You know, it's actually like, oh, here's what it would be like if we actually felt that interconnection, if we could naturally give. It's enacting this sense of the joy of having enough. And it's remembering the possibility of the end of suffering. Uh, and it's remembering the path to the end of suffering as well. So how can you do this? Um, you can actually practice this uh, by choosing to look for opportunities to be generous. So you could look for opportunities to be generous uh, in your life in small and large ways. And you can actually make a commitment to say, you know, I would like to actually uh, give whenever someone asks me to give. So you could try that for a little while. Say like for a week, whenever someone asks me to do something, I'm going to try and do the generous thing in that case. Or you could notice about your own generosity. Um, when is it that I'm ready to give something away and when am I hesitating to give something away? Right? Like where's the boundary there for me? You could challenge yourself to actually, instead of giving away, you know, the leftovers, like what if I actually gave someone the best? And that could be whatever, it could be an object, it could be actually attention, you could decide it's about time, you know, whatever it is that uh, is interesting to you to play with in that way. There's this, um, uh, sometimes a debate in spiritual circles about enlightenment itself. So is enlightenment sudden or is enlightenment gradual? How does it happen? Right? Uh, and uh, it seems like it could be both, right? It could be gradual until it's sudden. Right? <laughs> and this is actually the path of generosity too, right? It's like, oh yeah, okay, we, we'll uh, actualize this, actuate this, um, you know, be part of this, um, this gift culture, actually create the world in this radical way 
in the way that we know, uh, in the way that we want it to be. Right? And this is the way in which like, we can create the worlds in which we inhabit. You know, I was talking about the person with painting the tiger in the cave and then being scared off by it. You know? It's like we can paint a better picture. You know? We can actually notice the power of our mind and actually incline it towards something that's more positive. So resting in this sense of abundance, renouncing and enjoying, taking on the radical act of looking at desire with an open hand, noticing the gravitational pull between desire and freedom, and trying to make the difficult choice sometimes towards freedom towards love. Sometimes the act of generosity is actually an act of metta, too. Right? An act of understanding, generosity, a generous act of trying to understand someone else's perspective. Uh, I had an incident recently where I was going to the grocery store uh, in San Francisco, and it was um, kind of late at night in this parking garage. I was coming around a corner and this guy was riding his bicycle uh, like pretty fast around the same corner. And it was late enough they were all unloading the boxes of groceries. So we couldn't really see each other. And suddenly he came around the corner and he was going the wrong way down the one way thing, right? Um, and we almost uh, ran into each other, right? Uh, and we both were startled, I think. And he started yelling at me, you know, and, and like cussing me out, right, for, the, for this. And, uh, I felt myself, you know, first startled and then uh, actually kind of softened. And I was like, sorry. You know, I gave him sort of a gesture of like, oh, I'm sorry, and went on, right? And he definitely would have been the worst for that collision, right? Car versus bicycle. Uh, but something in me knew that sense of like, oh, yeah, the sense of when someone is startled, sometimes they respond in that way with aggression, you know? But I know it's from that sense of being startled, right? Uh, so I didn't need to cuss back at him or something, or I didn't need to be right. You know, I don't need to be the one who's right, arises that, arises the um, one driving the correct way, right? <laughs> that sense of self, right? It's just like, yeah, this is a scary moment in life when your life almost ends, you know? So just having compassion for uh, this being and actually for all of us in those circumstances. And then, you know, he went on. Or I have a, um, I have a young friend who, um, had, I, th- I guess, been trying to contact me through texting me, but she was texting me to my home phone number, which doesn't work, for those of you that know, like texting, you know? Um, but she didn't know she was doing that, so she thought I was not actually answering her messages, right? Uh, and she was very frustrated with me. So finally, we, we um, kind of ironed this out, and I gave her my, my um, actual cell phone number. And uh, she started, at first she was still upset, so she was texting me sort of hostile texts, right? Which is, Granted, a little bit immature, right? But, uh, but I realized, like, oh, she actually was hurt. You know, she was hurt that she thought I was not paying attention to her. And I actually very much like and respect this friend. Um, she's very young, but she also had an had a, a incident recently where she was mugged at um, gunpoint, she and her girlfriend. And uh, when she described the incident, she was, I was just very impressed by her attitude towards the mugger. She was like, you know, his hand was shaking, and he was clearly really scared. And, uh, you know, he might have been an addict or something. Like, she didn't actually hate him. You know, she had some understanding. She was like, we gave him what we had, and then, you know, we went back. And so apparently, you know, not returning text is worse than 
uh, you know, mugging at gunpoint, but still. So she was kind of hostile towards me. So, um, but I started texting her back um, uh, just messages of total love, like unabashed, you know, <laughs> like uh, unadulterated, you know, it's like, I heart you, you know, stuff like that. And, um, uh, and it actually has totally softened her. Like she sent me a couple of, you know, really cranky messages and then I just sent her these and then she just started to, to it just became sort of um, lighthearted in some way. Uh, and then now every time I will see her, or when I went to her office, I wrote this on a, a paper towel and I left it on her desk. Uh, and then she found it later. Uh, and then uh, I had to send her something in the mail and I also wrote, I heart you in the thing and send it to her. And, you know, so now it's a bit of a joke, but it just totally softened her, you know, her attitude in that way. And I just had realized like, oh yeah, her, her, she's hurt, so then she's being hostile, you know, which is oftentimes the case when people are, are hurt. Or, you know, sometimes people withdraw, sometimes people become hostile, but it's like, oh, okay, what will serve in this case? For me to actually become hostile back, right? Or, if possible, for me to actually be generous, you know, to be understanding, right? Uh, in this case, actually, even have a little bit of fun with it and then express some love, loving kindness. You know. uh, it seems to work. You can kind of play with that, you know. I mean, it actually is much more fun than going through the scripted relationships, you know? I mean, it doesn't have to be as radical as like what the guy did when he was mugged, like to give the jacket and take him to dinner, but even in small ways, we all have these opportunities, you know, in our lives uh, for generosity, even in like tiny interactions, right? And it kind of throws people off too, you know? Sometimes people are ready for a fight and they expect you to be like right there to, <laughs> you know, be there. And sometimes it's appropriate. It's not like you always need to give in to everyone or, you know, you always need to be anything. But sometimes it's, it's a helpful response, you know. So when you're able to rest in the heart of kindness, the heart of generosity, then it allows for much more creative responses, I think. You know, it allows for much more creative life. And sometimes you don't know what's going to come, you know. You don't know what the response is going to be. Uh, but you can wait and see, and then it's interesting. You know, it's much more interesting than everyone taking their like uh, predictable positions and then playing out the battles. Right? So generosity, it's related to the loving kindness. It's related to renunciation. It's related to patience. With all of these, it's good to notice where you are. You know, notice where it is that you are naturally. Uh, and see that, you know, so this is also related to the truthfulness. Like, be really honest with yourself of where you are with this, right? Other ways to support cultivating this is actually um, spending time around people who already have this quality. And this is true of all of the paramis, actually. That a good way to cultivate any of them is to hang around people who have this quality. Right? So, like, if you want to be... Uh, try to become a more truthful person, like hang around people who have uh, truthfulness as a strong quality, right? Uh, you can notice, like when you're around people who tend to be very generous, like doesn't that incline you to be more generous too, right? So part of this is also connected to compassion. So in realizing that life is difficult for all of us. Right? So that's, I think, also the fuel for the guy who could have this radical relationship with the guy who mugged him. 
was a recognition like, oh yeah, this kid, he's probably going through something, you know. He's not, he's, he didn't make him the enemy, right? Uh, or even my friend with her mugger, you know, she realized like, oh yeah, this guy, he might be addicted to something. Like, there's some reason why people are acting like this, right? Like, I don't have to hate him. So having the spaciousness of compassion, you know, that allows us to either understand the other person or at least hold in the space of not knowing uh, that we don't understand their whole story, you know. Like we're not always right. Or even if we are right in this case, you know, like in the one-way street situation, like it's clear that I was right, but like so what, you know. Like so what, right. Certainly there have been other times in which I've been the one not right. And I would appreciate it if someone didn't kill me in those cases, right. Sometimes I've gone down, ride my bicycle down lanes the wrong way. So it's good to remember this, like we've been on all different sides. You know, we've been on all different sides in this life. And if you have some sense of past lives, you know, absolutely uh, in the past. So this brings a sense of compassion. So this is a good uh, practice to take on as we move into our regular life from the retreat. So you can practice with your uh, friends and family when you go back too. So people might ask you like, oh, how was your retreat? Right. And it's good to tell them something about it. Right. Um, sometimes it's good to tell them like a little bit and then see if they're actually really interested or if they just want the... Uh, <laughs> If they just want the, like, it was a great answer, you know. Um, and then, actually, it could be good to be generous with them, be like, how was your week? Right? Actually, to ask them about that. And maybe they have a lot to say, right? So actually, maybe, like, then, then we can engage with them in some way. Right? Maybe noticing also, uh, you know, all those who supported you when you, uh, while you were on retreat. So someone was probably, like, watering the plants or... Um, covering for you at work, or feeding the cat, or, you know, other people in your house were doing your chores, so uh, maybe being generous in return for that, right? Like maybe trying to help them out with stuff, and actually appreciating uh, what it took to support you. So gratitude is also connected to generosity. And then also looking for these opportunities for sort of unscheduled acts of generosity. So the Buddha taught about generosity that uh, it's such a beneficial thing and it's actually helpful to practice uh, reflecting on it beforehand, so our intention for generosity, um, to be connected to it during the act and knowing this is a wholesome thing, right? And then also actually afterwards to appreciate our generosity. And this does not mean like with a sense of, um, of ego or arrogance, like, oh, I'm so great, like I gave all this stuff, right? Um, but more just appreciating like that quality itself, you know, that quality of generosity. Uh, because that helps to reinforce it in us, you know, that spirit of generosity. And it's so transformative. You know, it's so rare. It helps to transform ourselves. It helps to transform our relationships 
it helps to transform society. So here in the retreat, it's been such a beautiful environment here where people have been you know, doing their best to try to like, move around uh, with regard for each other. I know we've all been um, positively affected by the environment in the kitchen and the generosity with which uh, Nancy and Greg offer the food. And even in the cooking itself, you know, that, that uh, it feels like clearly we're, we're connected. You know, there's like a thin wall between meditation hall and, and uh, kitchen, right? And it's a beautiful thing to feel that. So it contributes to uh, this week for our world here, right? And we all actually can be catalysts in this way and contributors to whatever worlds that we, you know, take birth in when we leave the retreat. So in this way, like, we all can be leaders, you know, whether that's sort of in your home or in your workplace or even in the grocery store line or wherever you find yourself, right, um, is an opportunity to actually choose to act with generosity. Even when other people don't seem to be doing that. Right? And those are actually the hardest moments to do so, when other people seem to be very, uh, you know, about me-ishness. But still, those are actually the best opportunities, right? It's easy to be generous when there's like, uh, everyone else is, is setting the tone for it, right? Uh, but now you know the teachings too, you know, like you know in your heart. So you can actually practice, challenge yourself to try to set the tone sometimes, to be the one taking the radical act of generosity in whatever way that is. The Buddha taught that no act of kindness or, or generosity uh, Will, will pass unnoticed. You know, this is also the teaching of karma. So the seeds that you plant through your actions and through your words, you know, these will garner the results. And the results in the future might be abundance, but the results in the very present moment are abundance in your heart. Abundance in your heart and transformation of even the little world just around you. And then finally, there's generosity towards yourself. So noticing, for example, the mind of judgmentalness as it arises, uh, the mind of self-hatred that might come up. So can I actually give myself the benefit of the doubt the same way that I might uh, someone else? So part of your commitment to generosity could be trying to actually cultivate that kind of kindness and open-heartedness towards yourself as well. So the more we're able to do that with ourselves also, then the more we can be generous with others. So starting that sense of abundance from within. And here's where also continuing your practice at home is such an act of kindness for the world. So the more we're able to cultivate these qualities of mindfulness, of being present, of loving kindness, the more we, we just become these beacons, right? We become these, uh, these uh, torches in the world of this generosity. You know, we have this ability to, to change uh, the situations that we're in through the deep inner transformation of mind from generosity.
So if you knew what I knew about generosity, you would not let even one meal go by without sharing. You would choose, rather than stinginess, generosity and open-handedness, even if it meant your last meal or your last mouthful. So I encourage you to have fun with the practice of generosity. Practice it both here on retreat towards yourself and also as you go into the world towards people who you meet. I appreciate the generosity that you've shown so far through your commitment to your practice. And I like the way Andrea talked about the paying it forward kind of thing in terms of the dana that's offered for the retreat. You know. And I was thinking about what she meant by that in terms of the teachers. I guess it's like people have fed us so far so we're alive. So then uh, if you continue to give us food, we will continue to be alive to teach. <laughs> Something like that, right? Uh, and with Hidden Villa also, it's, it's a cool thing. It's like, oh yeah, someone has um, already footed the bill f- to pay for this retreat, and then it's like you get to offer it to someone else. Right? It's kind of like that surprise thing when um, if you've ever gone through a toll booth and someone happens to have paid for you, if you drive through, or you might have heard about this. You know, you go there expecting to have to give the money, and suddenly they're like, oh no, that guy paid for you. You're like, who is that? I don't know who that was. <laughs> what? They what? You know? Wow. You know? It totally changes your day, something like that, right? It's like a a shift in paradigm, right? So then you get a chance to do that, uh, too, in this way. So I appreciate very much IMC for um, that model. And I appreciate the opportunity to serve the Dharma in this way, too. So it's a continued practice for me, um, as it is for you. Uh, And I thank you for being part of the the teachings, both today and uh, all of this week. So we'll just sit together for a moment.